the dust of the ground. And that dust was a loving work of creation. Our first parents were happy in God. They were happy in their work and they were happy with one another. But in my second sermon in Genesis chapter 3, we move from creation to the fall where everything changes. And Adam and Eve turn from God and seek to live lives of selfish independence. The dust and ashes now represent the futility of fallen life. God is compelled to bring covenant sanctions or judgments upon Adam and Eve. He says to them, he says to us, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return uh, to, uh, to the ground. For from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So now this morning, we turn to the New Testament to look at God's gracious salvation through the regeneration of his people uh, and what God does to redeem us from the death and dust of sin. Now, this is all very basic Bible stuff. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And I hope you feel the same way. Well, <clears throat> it's very important to keep these things in front of our minds in this short life. So I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to the third chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 3. And uh, follow along as I read from the first verse uh, through the 15th. John uh, chapter 3, beginning at the first verse. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. As I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he... Um, who has descended from heaven, 
the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Well, this is um, a familiar uh, passage, I think, for all of us, um, but one that um, is worthy of a careful look. In it, we, um, we find this man, Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is an important visitor. John identifies him as a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. That makes him a religious man, a teacher, an educated man. Uh, in addition, we discover that he was a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. That makes him a person of great authority and respectability. Why John chooses to note that Nicodemus visits uh, Jesus at night has always been a matter of debate. Was it because he was ashamed of visiting someone that his pharisaical friends looked down upon as a renegade rabbi uh, in the light of day? Or was it because he felt he might have a better chance of catching Jesus and having time to speak with him at night? But the most interesting question is why he came at all. I mean, what would interest would, would he have speaking to Jesus anyway? He opens the conversation with a complimentary sort of a remark about how Jesus must be a, a teacher sent from God. But the Lord brushes that aside and gets right to the point. Verse 3, answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. The text says he answered him. But in point of fact... Nicodemus hadn't even asked anything of the Lord at this point. But Jesus answered him anyway because our Lord knew his heart and knew his soul. Knew that he did have a question, whether he was really conscious and thought it through or not. His question was the same question of the rich young ruler who also visited Jesus and, um, and uh, asked him, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Deep in his heart. That was Nicodemus' question too. But our Lord doesn't answer him uh, with more rules or some rituals or to perform. He, he doesn't receive the answer he expected at all. Um, instead, Jesus is telling this learned, holy, uh, religious leader that to obtain the kingdom of God, to get to heaven... He needs a radical change in his life. In fact, nothing short of a life-changing, supernatural act of God's grace would qualify him, or anyone, for the kingdom. When Nicodemus is confused about this, our Lord actually rebukes him. He says, you're a teacher? You're a teacher of Israel, a Pharisee, a ruler, a big shot of the Jews, and, and you don't understand what I'm saying? Had Nicodemus no knowledge of the Old Testament prophets who repeatedly warned Israel against empty pharisaical rituals, uh, warned against mere religious outward appearances, pleading with them to circumcise their hearts and not just uh, their flesh. Uh, had, had this man, uh, Nicodemus, never, never read uh, anything about, uh, the, the, from the prophet Ezekiel, who... who who promised that God would take away their hearts of stone and give them hearts of flesh. That's what Nicodemus needed, you see. He needed a heart operation. 
They're not just a band-aid job. And he needed a radical makeover, a work of supernatural power in his life to make a new spiritual man of him. But all this appears to elude him. And yet, let's take note that having begun pretty poorly, this man Nicodemus appears to have ended up pretty well. Uh, for later on in the Gospels, in John 7, 51, we read that of him defending Jesus in front of the entire Jewish council, demanding that he should receive a complete hearing before his condemnation. And in, later in John 19, we discover him assisting Joseph of Arimathea with the tender burial of Jesus' body when even his apostles had deserted him, the Lord, and left so it seems that in the end, Nicodemus may have been converted, may have got that second birth after all. And that's a very hopeful thing, I think, for us to read. He started out badly, as my wife uh, likes to remind us. It doesn't matter how you start out, it's how it all ends. Well, Bishop Ryle uh, observes this. He says it's, it's not those who make uh, the most flaming professions of religion at first but those who endure the longest and are, prove the most steadfast. Judas Iscariot was an apostle when Nicodemus was just groping his way slowly toward full light. And yet afterwards, when Nicodemus was boldly helping to bury his crucified Savior, Judas was betraying him and hanged him. This is a fact that ought not to be forgotten. Well, but... We need to be clear on this. Why, why did Jesus tell Nicodemus that he needed to be born again? Why, did this, why was his strict pharisaical ritualism inadequate? He was a conservative man. He wasn't a liberal, he was a conservative. He, he's a man who believes something. Uh, well, because, because in a word, the man was dead. He needed to be born again because the first birth wasn't sufficient to save him. Uh, that is, in fact, the spiritual condition of every one of us. That's the result of our sin. That's the wages of sin. We're spiritually dead. The spiritual element within us, the eternal element within us, our souls is dead. Dead to God. Dead to spiritual truth. Dead to reality, you talk to a man about these things and they just look at you and, and kind of think, what's wrong with him? Well, that's the blindness of sin, you see. That's the result of, of Adam's sin, uh, who said, uh, you remember, the Lord said to him, on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And Adam and Eve did die. They died spiritually right then. And later on, physically as well. We're all infected by sin. We all share the same judgment. The Apostle Paul understood this very well. Right into the Ephesians, he said, you are dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to walk in the, in, in the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that now is at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, brothers and sisters, this is a, a serious condition that we share with Nicodemus. It's a terminal condition. It's a condition that makes us right for eternal judgment before the Lord on the day of our physical death. Truly, if you stand before the Lord God, as we all will, and have nothing more than the first birth and are blubbering something about, well, you kept the rules, 
but you're still spiritually dead, all unsaved men and all young people, there's no hope for you at all, eternally. If you have nothing more than your own religion, your own religious philosophy, your own good record, your own good works, if you appear before the Lord on that day without Jesus, without the second birth, it's the second birth that Jesus is speaking about, then you're lost. I want you to think for a moment about the parable of the prodigal son. I think you probably remember that story. Uh, there's um, the, the two brothers. Uh, uh, the younger of them wants to leave home. He, he wants to declare himself independent from his father. And so he gets together his inheritance and he rushes off. Uh, this young man, as our Lord styles him, is a picture and not a very flattering picture of us all who have turned away from trust in God in the manner of Adam and Eve because we believe we can be like God ourselves. We're seeking to establish our own autonomy, our independence from God. We want to live our life without God. Thank you. So this son leaves his father and family and runs off and runs through his inheritance, um, his Christian capital, as it were, and lives, uh, lives this wicked life of willful sin and dis dissolution until he's finally left with nothing and is reduced to the consequences of his sin. He's feeding pigs for a Gentile farmer and getting nothing to eat himself. He's tired. And he's hungry. And eventually he comes to the end of himself. All of his proud independence that has brought him nothing but hunger and misery and ruin. And finally the text tells us he comes to his senses. He comes to repentance. And, and he purposes... Uh, to return home and to seek the forgiveness of his father. And remarkably, his father runs down the road to receive him and throws his arms around him. And what does he say? He says, the son of mine was lost, but now is found. He was dead. Dead. But now he's alive. So this young man was, was spiritually dead. He was lost to his father. He was nothing but a walking bag of dust and ashes. But now, by the grace of God, he's been found and made alive. Now, it's a parable, so it doesn't explain everything. But you get the idea there. And let's be clear on this. Uh, neither the son in Jesus' parable, uh, nor Nicodemus, nor you and I can be restored to life and to the father outside of an act of his saving grace. It was God's loving hand of grace that brought this young man to the end of himself, to the end of his rope, and brought him uh, being dead in his sin and lost as a prodigal son. Nicodemus and you and I must have this second birth. And it's not something we can do for ourselves. We cannot birth ourselves a second time any more than we could the first time by ourselves. In other words, we're not talking this morning about something we can do to make ourselves fit for heaven. It's clearly not possible. The scripture is very clear on this. Um, and it's one thing, uh, and so that's one of the reasons, I think, why Jesus uses this peculiar a figure of speech about being born again. We're talking about what God must do for the lost and helpless sinners. We're talking about undeserved grace breaking into our lives. And this is the thing that makes Christianity absolutely unique in the world. Everybody else has got plans. 
do this, do that. You know, walk, walk on glass to Mecca. Go get the golden apples. You know, you, you fill it in. Do this, and God will like you. But Christianity says, <laughs> you're lost. You're lost. You're dead. You can't do anything for yourselves. Fall on your knees and ask God to be gracious. So, undeserved grace. What I'm talking about here, and what this text is talking about, is um, what we call the doctrine of regeneration. Regeneration means to make new. Uh, Jesus describes this regeneration, this second birth of, to, to Nicodemus, using this figure or picture or illustration of the wind. He says the wind blows where it wishes, and, and you hear the sound, but you, you don't know where it comes from, where it goes. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. The mysterious work of the, mysterious, of, of the Spirit is not altogether anything we can explain. Uh, but this work of regeneration is an act of God's grace. It's the business of the Holy Spirit to take dead men and to quicken them and to make them spiritually alive to revive their souls and give them an interest in Jesus. It's all somewhat um, mysterious to rational men and it's easy to uh, make fun of it and throw it aside. Here's a man who, who has no interest in God or religion or Christ at all. But, but then suddenly... Perhaps through some misfortunes or tragedies or difficulties, uh, he suddenly stops short in life. And, and like the prodigal son, he hears, really for the first time he hears, maybe something he's heard before, but he finally really hears the gospel and suddenly and inexplicably begins to recognize himself as a sinner. And he gets a heart of repentance. He realizes it's all his fault. He doesn't stop blaming everybody else in the world for his misfortunes. He faces the truth. He gets an interest in Jesus. It suddenly dawns on him, like the prodigal son, uh, that he's made a mess of his life and he needs to go home and throw himself on the mercy of his father. Now, how did, how did that happen? How did he get to that place? Well, God uses whatever outward means he, he may use, but... Ultimately, it's, it's a gracious work of God, the Holy Spirit, who drives home, who makes effectual the powerful, redemptive work that Christ did on the cross. Our Lord does this great work on the cross. So what? It's just something he did. But the Holy Spirit takes that and, and makes it useful to us. He makes that salvation our salvation. He regenerates us, making us spiritually alive and making us say to ourselves, yes, I do believe that. That is the truth. Obviously, that's the truth. It all makes sense. It didn't make sense before. But the Holy Spirit wasn't working before. But now he's working and all of a sudden, click. It all makes sense. Well, sometimes you'll see a covenant child who's grown up hearing all these things all their life. And, and, you know, it's all there. You know, I sometimes talk about wiring the house. You know, you wire the house up when it's a new house. Put all the wiring together, but and nothing's happening. It's all still dark in there. And then, but then someone finally flicks the switch and everything goes on. It's great. Well, you know, that covenant child has had the house been well wired for him in a good church. He's got all these pieces and all of a sudden God, the Holy Spirit works. It may be very, very early in his life. 
or maybe very late in his life. Well, that's what we need. Now, the Apostle Paul, uh, writing in to, to Titus, says it this way, and this is a great passage. He says, he saved us, not because of righteous deeds we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us by the washing of rebirth or regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us generously through Christ Jesus our Savior. Now, earlier in the service, we read from the Westminster Shorter Catechisms. These guys were pretty smart. They had a way with words. And they said, um, uh, how, do we, how are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? Uh, which, is, which is just another way of saying, how can we get this work that Christ did in our hearts? How can we be saved? How can we move from the dust of death to life? And the answer is, you read it, uh, we're made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by the Holy Spirit. So what's the work of the Spirit? The work of the Spirit is effectually to call us, to speak to our hearts, convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills. And he doth persuade and enable us, persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel. That's regeneration. That's the second birth. That's exactly what Jesus is teaching us in this text. Has God done that work in your life? Has he given you an interest in Christ? Has he caused you to repent of your sin and your proud unbelief and your independence? Have you really asked Jesus to save you? Have you been born again? The idea, this requirement of the new birth actually fills the Bible. Especially the New Testament. The Apostle Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again through a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And St. Paul in his first epistle says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves God has been born of God and knows God. And we've already heard the Apostle Paul who reminds us in the church of Ephesus that even though we were dead in our sins and trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. And he uses the same language in Romans 6.13, urging the Roman Christians to present themselves as instruments of righteousness having been brought from death to life. And to the church of Corinth, those memorable words, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That's what Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about. And that's what has to happen to all of us. But, how does it come about? How is a man, how does it happen? How is a man made alive or born again? What does it mean? Uh, what means, I guess, is what I want to say. What means does God use? What method does God use to make this happen? And the answer is, by means of faith. We must ask God to give us faith. Faith is the hands by which we reach out and grasp hold of, of the gospel, grasp hold of Jesus. You want Jesus? You've got to reach out and grab hold of him, or grab hold of the Savior. Uh, this is what it says in, in, in verse 14 of the text. Uh, and Moses <coughs> lifted up the serpent 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him, has faith in him, may have eternal life. Now, now that's a very interesting a reference that Jesus is making. is something that happened long ago, back in uh, the days of Exodus, and we can read about it in the book of Numbers. In fact, I am going to read it. Uh, just a few verses from uh, Numbers chapter 21. Where this is the reference that Jesus is, is making when he, when he says about this snake being lifted up. <clears throat> um, this is uh, found in Numbers 21, fourth book of the Bible, uh, chapter, chapter 21, verse 4. From Mount Hur they set out on the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God uh, and against Moses. This is not the first time this has happened. <clears throat> and um, and uh, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. That's the manna. Um, they, we, we loathe this worthless food. Uh, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned. We've spoken against the Lord, and against you. Pray to the Lord that he might take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a, a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So... <clears throat> The question is, it's a curious passage, but you might say, well, what would have compelled um, uh, these hard-hearted Israelites um, who, who are never happy with anything God does for them? Um, not that any of us are like that. Um, never happy. And what would compel them to, uh, to turn from their painful experience of disobedience and accept God's divine remedy? Well, it's all a matter of repentance and faith, of recognizing their bankruptcy and their sin against God and against Moses and turning and asking God to heal them. Now, how does this work? It sounds almost superstitious, but what was this bronze serpent, brothers and sisters, but a picture, like a stained glass window, pointing Israel to Jesus? Now, that's why it was effectual. I quote again my one of favorite quotes from Martin Luther. The Bible is a royal chariot in which Jesus always rides. Isn't that a great one? Everywhere. There he is. There's Jesus. And that's what this was pointing to. Um, uh, because, uh, <laughs> you know, that's why it was effectual, this healing. Uh, that's why they were healed, because God heals and saves believers through Christ in every age. Who was it who was lifted up on the cross? Who was it to whom we must look and set eyes of faith upon it for this new life? Well, it's the Lord Jesus. Uh, from one cover of the Bible to the other, the glorious figure is Jesus. Uh, Jesus explains this to his disciples as recorded in John 12. He says, now, now will a ruler of this world be cast out, and I, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show them what kind of death he was going to die. 
And don't you know that our Lord was lifted up on the cross to die for our sins, to draw people to himself as the Savior? So I'm going to ask again, even to this wonderful, sweet congregation, has he drawn you to himself? Have you found this new birth? Have you been regenerated? Have you been raised from the dust of spiritual death to new life in Christ? Have you come to the place in your life where you are believing and exercising faith in Jesus? The Lord Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life. Have you crossed over from death to life? You and I must turn from proud independence and lay hands upon Jesus and get his salvation by turning our eyes to the Lord in faith. Now, maybe someone is honest enough to say, well, <clears throat> sorry, I, I don't have any faith. I'm not even sure I'm really interested in this. Or maybe you're saying to yourself, well, you know, I, I think I do want to be born again, but... I want to trust in Christ and what he did for me, but I can't. It seems too, too spooky, too supernatural, too religious, too, uh, too, uh, too spiritual. Born again? Trusting Jesus? Can't even see him. Well, that's a good place to start. It means you know you're bankrupt. You know you have no credit. You don't even have a down payment to make to God. So it's totally out of your reach. And that's where God wants you. There's only one thing left to do, to ask. To ask for the free gift of faith. To just say to Jesus, Lord, help me. I am so lost in my sin, I can't even see the truth in front of my face. Uh, please save me. Give me faith. Change me. Awaken my dead heart. Save me. That's a prayer that Jesus and the Holy Spirit simply can't resist. Now, <clears throat> this is how I think I need to end. I need to go back to that fiery serpent in Numbers 21. Um, do you know that that serpent actually became a snare to Israel? It, it did. And we read, in it's recorded in 2 Kings 18, that the godly king Hezekiah, who was seeking to purify the land of Israel from all its idols that were leading the people astray, and I quote, removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Now, why do I read that? Because it's a reminder to us, I don't think I'm keeping up with this very well, it's a reminder to us that you and I can make an idol out of absolutely anything. Um, it just reminds us that, that, that just as Israel made an idol out of the bronze serpent, which was nothing more than a reminder to them of their need to, of repentance and the need to look to Christ. You and I can do that easily. We learn here that it had become a snare to Israel, that they had begun to treat it as if it were an idol, and they were burning incense to it. It had taken on a life of its own. It was a replacement for God. I, I say this in all humility, but 
that's what's happened to the Virgin Mary, isn't it? You know, people praying, you know, and burning incense. Idols corrupt faith. They make easy religion. But crosses and pictures and representative uh, symbols don't change anyone's heart. They don't get anyone to heaven. Only Jesus can do that. It's the work of God, the Holy Spirit. 2 Kings 18 reminds us precisely of what Jesus was confronting Nicodemus about in our text. That religion and the rituals of religion, of which he was well steeped, <clears throat> regardless of how elaborate or how simple they might be, can lead us away from faith, simple faith in Christ. They may start out representing Christ, as the bronze serpent did in Numbers 21, but the human heart, and, and Calvin says this so clearly, <clears throat> but the human heart so easily corrupts them. And, they, and these things begin to take on a life of their own, and ere long, they actually replace Jesus altogether and lead us away from a simple faith in Christ alone and his saving work on the cross. They can especially be a great snare to those who have grown up in the church and know all the rules and all the rituals and forget that we're actually saved by grace and not by our works. It's not all those things we do. I love the Lord's Day. I love the Sabbath. But, but that's not the gospel. It's important to keep the Lord's Day, but, but nobody's saved by keeping the Lord's Day, are they? So, so, you know, these are important things. We, we can make these, our performance and our rituals and our church attendance uh, somehow becoming more important than Jesus himself. Brethren, without God's saving grace, we're as good as dead. In fact, really, we are dead. Nothing more than dust and ashes. We must all be born again. Jesus said so. If you don't catch all this, you don't understand all all of this and what needs to be done. You know, please, you can't speak to me. I've got to leave pretty quickly to go somewhere this morning. But, but, but speak with Pastor Ellis or speak with one of the elders and, and, and ask them to help you understand this better. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, thank you for this really clear passage that tells us that, um, that we need something we can't produce ourselves. That our own effort, that our own performance, like nothing in the world is like this, Lord, you know. But, but it's not the world that has given us our clues here. It's your word that reminds us that we must turn to you and reach out with a faith that we're going to ask you to give us uh, to trust in you and to be born again. Lord, to have that spiritual work to make us alive to spiritual things, alive to you until a life is filled with your pleasures and filled with, with your glory. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.